And add, if I could add one thing, why it's yeah. called touchy-feely is what's central to the course is sharing emotions. Mm. So there's a lot of feelings. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. So much of the quality of our lives depends upon the quality of our relationships. And exceptional relationships don't just happen. Building exceptional relationships is a skill that we can cultivate. My guest today is an expert on this topic. He taught at Stanford Business School for more than 50 years. He is the creator and was the leader of a course called Interpersonal Dynamics, affectionately known as Touchy Feely. He has coached and consulted with hundreds of executives for decades. He's worked closely with his colleague, Carol Robin. He also helped develop much of the school's leadership curriculum and he's the author of multiple books, including the one that is the subject of this conversation called Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues. In this book, David and Carol, who's his co-author, show readers how to take their relationships from shallow to exceptional by cultivating authenticity, vulnerability, and honesty while being willing to ask for and offer help, share commitment to growth, and deal productively with conflict. So here are a few of the things that we talk about in this conversation. I ask him, how did you teach for 50 years? How did you stay married for more than 50 years? He's still married. Uh, how do you have that kind of longevity in your career, your relationships, or anything? And he gives, I think, a great answer to that. Uh, we talk about something he calls the tennis court model and the three realities in any interaction. And this is one of those models that I really believe can change your whole life, the way that you interact with people and the results that you produce uh, from those interactions. David talks about feedback as information rather than a requirement for change. He talks about how to identify and distinguish between thoughts and feelings, why it matters, and the subtle cues in our language can help us know when we're doing which. We also talk about feedback sandwiches, you know, those things that are popular in corporate America and how they are often actually manipulative and self-serving and how we can uh, give feedback and corrective action conversations and praise more effectively and authentically. We talk about something called a pinch, what that is, how we can identify it and use it and not wait until something becomes a big conflagration or a crunch in our relationships, but instead address it productively and, and cultivate extraordinary relationships. Life-changing and transformational. Those are words most often used to describe the course on which this book is based. And although I haven't gone through it myself, having read the book and had this conversation with David and listened to a few of his other interviews, I can attest that this information is potentially life-changing. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, David Bradford. David, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Um, David, will you tell me, please, what is life about? <laughs> I think life is about two things for me. One is living it fully. 
And the second is trying to make a better world. Hmm. That's, that's, uh, that's my responsibility. All right. I like that answer. Now, I'll ask you to, if you're willing to elaborate a little bit on that, how have you gone about or how are you going about living fully and making it a better world? How are you, what's that look like for you? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a couple of things. One is it's trying to live in the present, uh, not to ignore the fact that I may have some regrets about the past and not to forget that I may have some hopes for the future but not to be controlled by either of them, but to very much live in the present and say, um, what can I do that for me is rewarding? Uh, which may be um, that I, uh, I want to go. Yesterday, I decided to go out for a walk, a nice long walk. And that for me was very uh, uh, yeah. fulfilling. It may be wanting to spend time with Eva, my wife, or calling our kids. Uh, so it's, it's, can I, uh, I remember once having a friend say, um, answer the question, are you doing now exactly what you want to do now? Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult question, uh, to ask yourself, what is it I want to do now? And I can say that what I want to do now is to have this conversation with you. Beautiful. I, that's what I want to have. So, so that's the first part. The, the second part is um, uh, what gives me meaning is to uh, to try to make a better world, and uh, that's uh, that's part of why we wrote the book. We have a vision about that book improving the world. It's uh, why I have rewarded been rewarding teaching. Uh, that's uh, very rewarding for me. But, but it's also how I want to deal with people. Mm-hmm. Is, is can I um, uh, n- not do things that make things worse for that person? It may be that I'm going to have to say some difficult things, but it's with the intention of making our relationship uh, better. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, thank you for, for breaking that down a little bit. I, I want to dive into this more. Um, I think about many people, you know, many people um, don't really know what they want or if they're doing now what it is they want to be doing, right? Or maybe who they are, um, what their own life is about, that kind of thing. And uh, many people might be considered dabblers, which there's nothing wrong with that or dilettantes, like <laughs> moving from one subject to another. But I think not you, right? You're in longevity. I understand you've been married more than 50 years. Mm-hmm, correct. You, you taught at Stanford more than 50 years. Correct. So there's this longevity and this depth and, and something that's very rare in many regards. Uh, I want to ask you, like, just even before we get into, and I obviously we'll, we'll talk a lot about your book, Connect, and the course that it's based on. But uh, let me just start by asking about longevity. Like, how have you been able to find and stay with anything for more than five decades? (laughs) Well, um, since you started with the marriage, we'll start with that. Um, Actually, 56 years. Um, It takes work. 
and it's taken work uh, during during most of it. It still takes work. It's, it's not, you know, Eva's a wonderful person, and we're deeply in love. But um, we're both uh, changing, growing. Uh, we also may become less tolerant of things we tolerated before. And it's a willingness to say, are we will are we willing to uh, to look at things when they get in the way? So um, I think one of the most uh, misleading phrases is a marriage ceremony which says, and may you live happily ever after. Mm. I, I don't think that's possible. Uh, I think that for that to occur, both parties, or one party or both parties have to stop growing, have to stop thinking. So uh, I would say that, uh, but, but, also, but also, can you see that as, uh, as a source of satisfaction, not as a problem or a sign of difficulty, but as an interesting challenge? And uh, with that sort of mindset, I think it's easier to uh, deal with the difficulties or pinches that inevitably occur. I, I think in terms of the work, that also has never been a static phenomenon for me. It's, there's always been something new. There's um, the course, which we'll talk about, was in a constant and still is state of development. I also developed other things. I developed a professional organization. I helped to introduce and develop the leadership program at Stanford. I've always looked for challenges. Mm -hmm. And um, I want um, next year to be somewhat different than this year. And the wonderful thing about the freedom I had at Stanford is I could, I could have those, that, those degrees of freedom to do different things, to do additional things. And uh, one of the points of inspiration I have is Decades ago, I went to a, um, a retrospective of Renoir, the French Impressionist painter at the Boston uh, Art Museum. And apparently his last words, and he died in his 80s, was, ah, that's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's been inspirational to me, because I know that if he would have lived one more year, that would have been his last words, because he yeah. was constantly figuring out what's the way to do it. And uh, I don't think anything I've done has ever reached the final stage because I'm not sure when you're doing creative work, there is a final point. Yeah. So, so when you say stay, doing one thing for 55 years, I don't think I have. I've been at one place for 55 years, mm. but I haven't done one thing. Right on. That's, um, that's a great response. So, this idea, this idea that it sounds like one thing, it's been one place, but it's not been one thing. Um, Correct. Reminds me of a common saying in the personal growth, uh, you know, self-development world. If you're not growing, you're dying mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it sounds like that's certainly been true in your experience. And one of those things that's been dynamic, you mentioned this course, interpersonal dynamics, I understand is the name of the course, but more popularly known as touchy-feely. Correct. Yes. <laughs> Will you tell me a little bit about, about this program? What is it? How and why did it begin? How has it evolved? What does it do for people? It's just anything you'd like to talk about related to it. 
Yeah. It's, it's based on a very simple concept that's hard to implement. But the concept is, um, I need you in order to know me. That is, um, I may know my motives. I may know my intentions. Both of us uh, can see my behavior, my words, my gestures, and so on. But I don't know the impact I have. And I need to know that impact if I'm to be effective. And, but we live in a world in which we rarely get that impact directly. We, uh, now I'm talking and you're nodding. So I'm assuming I'm making some sense, but it might be that you've just been raised to be so polite that even though I'm not making sense, you nod anyway. Mm. And the difficulty is we don't know how to let the other person know the impact of their behavior, particularly if their behavior bothers us. We think there's an act of kindness to let it pass all the time. And yet I start with the assumption most people are well-intentioned. And if I'm doing something that is dysfunctional, bothers the other person, I need to know it. Because if I don't know it, I don't have a choice. Hmm. I may not go along with what the other person wants, but it's useful for me to, to know the impact. Now, that's a long answer to your question, so let me try and delve into your question. What this course is about is, a, uh, in some ways, a simple process. We have 12 students and two facilitators who meet for about uh, five hours a week, and then they go away for a long weekend. It's an unstructured group situation. And the task of the group is to build a group in which we can learn from each other. So we don't have to have cases. We don't have to have role plays. We don't have to do anything like that. Totally unstructured. And the facilitators support people sharing their reaction, particularly their feelings. So what is so powerful about it is people learn how to find out the impact of their behavior. So I can say to somebody, do you look troubled? What is it? It's not just asking that, but it's also, am I willing to hear the answer? Mm. And then not be uh, upset, uh, upended by it. I may be mm -hmm. upset, but I hopefully I'm not offended by it. But it's also a process in which people um, learn that they can be more themselves, more authentic. Many of us walk around that if I'm to be powerful, leader-like, attractive, sexy, whatever you want, I have to pretend to be something that I'm not. Mm -hmm. And what I inevitably find is the more I am myself, in an appropriate way in this setting, usually the more effective I am. Yeah. But uh, it's a risk because we have the fear that if you know me, you may not like me. Right. And uh, so this is a course in which we build a climate in which people can start to take the risk of being more themselves and hearing the reaction of other people. And can raise it when I'm bothered when you're doing something. But I could also express my appreciation in an authentic way, which we often don't do, when you do something I like. 
and and it's a the key to building uh, strong open relationships. Mm. It's, and add if I could add one thing, why it's yeah. called touchy feely is what's central to the course is sharing emotions. Mm. So there's a lot of feelings. Yeah, this um, reading this book so connect building exceptional relationships with family, friends, and colleagues. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about this book is there were a few distinctions, a few kind of models or ideas that you offer in the book that for me, just having access to that is helpful. And I want to ask you about a couple of those, but of course this is experiential. Like you've said, you know, you get a group of people and they go away and they have interaction and they actually try these things out. And it's more than just a theoretical thing. As I understand many of these people, this changes their life. Like it's yes. not just in the workplace, but also in their parenting and their relationship and their social things. What are some of the ways that you've seen that this has made a difference for people long after the program has ended? Yeah. And we keep on hearing reports. In fact, uh, last Friday I did a, um, hour and a half presentation to a class reunion of 20, the 25th class reunion. And the people talked about how they were using it. So some of the things that came out, one person said, um, I was really having difficulty with my boss and uh, we weren't really communicating well with each other. And it was getting more and more dicey. And I was actually thinking of leaving. And I remember what I'd learned in the course. And I, talked to my boss and I said, uh, this isn't working for me. And I, I guess this is not working for you. Uh, can we talk about it? And he said, uh, it, it turned our relationship around. Uh, had another person who said, uh, this has been crucial to my marriage is that we now can raise difficult issues. We can even get upset at each other without, uh, it, breaking up the marriage or causing a uh, deep hurt that can't be uh, uh, rectified. Uh, heard people talk about um, uh, reconnecting with, uh, with parents that they felt uh, somewhat estranged with. So, so we hear people uh, in, in almost all aspects of their life. Uh, some, I remember, um, a person in his 30s was an executive program we read, we ran, that was based on this course. And he went home and he said to his teenage uh, uh, daughter, he said, my guess is you don't feel heard by me. And she said, yes, I don't. Uh -huh. And he said, I'm sorry, let me try again. Uh -huh. And uh, that is so meaningful when we hear those stories. So we hear it with family, we hear it with friends, we hear it a lot at work, um, where you aren't necessarily building an exceptional relationship, but you're trying to build an open, functional one. Yeah. And there's always difficulties with, yeah. uh, with any relationship. Yeah, th that's right. That's something uh, I've definitely uh, observed is with any human relationship, as far as I can tell from my own experience, my own study, right. That there's always inevitably different differences of desire, differences of opinion, differences of value, misunderstandings, right. It just, it happens. It's, 
kind of inevitable. And one of the things that I really appreciate about your book and about the work you're doing is this, and I basically this idea that relationships are a skill and they're when we can learn to relate more skillfully, more effectively. And this idea, this was one that one of the things I was mentioning when I said there are a few distinctions, this idea of an exceptional relationship. It's kind of, it's almost, you could put maybe your own trademark behind that. And <laughs> you name this as a thing, as a possibility. And then you say, this is what it is. And this is how one can achieve it. And of course it's a model. It's a, it's a concept, but I think there's a lot of value to it. Will you talk about the idea of an exceptional relationship? Like where, where did that come from? What does it mean to you? And just not asking you to go through point by point, but a little bit about like how we can actually get there as real human beings. <laughs> well, well, let me talk about the dimensions that, that we think is crucial to exceptional. And uh, this was something that Carol and I, as we reflected on the years that we've taught this course, and we saw what it produced, not with all the students, but with some frequency uh, over the 10 weeks of course, where people did build relationships that, come close to what I'd call exceptional. The first one is what I alluded to before, which is, can I really be myself? Mm -hmm. uh, which doesn't mean I share everything with you, but I share what is relevant to our relationship at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Even more, I don't pretend. I don't try to spit an image. Um, I really am willing to say, this is David, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, this is me. The second dimension is, can I do things that encourage you to be more yourself? And we often do things that shut down other people or that we don't convey that we really want to know them. The third thing is, is can we build this relationship in share, this mutual sharing, which means that we're also being mutually vulnerable with some degree of confidence that what I share won't be used against me. Mm. Uh, this has relevance at work. So if we're colleagues at work and I share some self-doubts about my competency I have, will that not become uh, public uh, in a way that hurts me? But the other way it can hurt me is will you start to make judgments on me? Mm. It might mean that you don't approve of all my behavior, but I'm still accepted. I'm accepted as a human being, a flawed human being, but uh, you still can accept me. Uh, fourth is, can we be honest with each other? And um, when I hear somebody say, well, I'm going to be brutally honest, I find they're usually more brutal than honest. And we'll get into that later about what honesty really is. And again, it's not saying everything. But you know that what I say is what I mean. And um, what I mean is what I'm going to say. That you can trust my, my words. Fifth, uh, can we disagree? Can we raise disagreements? Can we even get into conflict? And not only can we raise it, but can we resolve it in a way that further deepens the relationship when the fear is that it will destroy the relationship? Yeah. And, and finally, um, are we committed to each other's growth and development? And that may mean that I'm going to say things that you in the moment may not like. We have the phrase in the course we sort of steal the Hallmark uh, slogan. We say, I care enough to say the very worst. 
that that if I see you doing something where you're hurting yourself, isn't it an act of kindness that I say that? And also, if I see you doing things that are really good, do I say it because you may not fully realize the benefits of your actions? So those are the six dimensions. They're all on a continuum. And relationships are on a continuum. You don't have to be at the top of all six, but you have to be pretty high on most of them, if not all of them. And then you can move toward exceptional. And when you're exceptional, and I think Carol and I have an exceptional relationship as my co-author, even I think I think we do, uh, I can say almost anything. I, yeah. can, um, uh, I can encourage her to do it. We can disagree. We can trust each other's comments. And, and that, in a sense, is a very uh, demanding state, but a relaxing state. I had a colleague once who said, when I'm in that relationship, I don't have to wear much armor. Mm. And I think we often walk around with a fair amount of armor to protect ourselves. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, my, my version of this, um, I feel very fortunate to be married to a woman who is my best friend. And we've been together about 12 years and early in our relationship, she said, you know, being with you is like being by myself, only better. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it, you know, that thing, there's no armor, there's no pretense, there's no effort, yeah. you know, to either present something or hold something back. And it's just, it's a gift. And it's a gift, like you said, and I think the second point, right, is if we can encourage others to be themselves. Yes. That there's a generosity that's possible in a relationship. And that's where you say relationships take work. I think maybe this is one of them is having the awareness and maybe the willingness, you know, to allow another to be who they are, or maybe honor who they're not when they tell us as well, or they show us through their actions. It's, it's pretty amazing. And, and this other model that I really want to ask you about, because again, it's one thing to hear these, like in this interview or to read them in the book, but um, then there's life as it's lived, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And I had just read on Tuesday, uh, the pages that describe this model that I don't know if you call it the tennis court model, Yeah. but the next day I was in a, I was in a meeting where things got a bit contentious and I was able to refer to that and sit and kind of observe. And I was like, oh, that's on that side of the net. And this is on this side of the net. And of course I didn't try to teach everyone, but it was interesting <laughs> to observe. <laughs> But I know I'm maybe speaking abstractly of something the listener doesn't yet have any context for, but that idea is amazing. Will you talk about that tennis court model or whatever you call it? How do you explain <laughs> that? Okay. Um, well, I, I'm back to what I said before about this course based on a simple model of I need you to know me. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with, again with that and build on it is that we say, uh, in fact, in terms of being honest, we say, you can say almost anything to almost anybody if you stick with your reality. Hmm. So it turns out in interacting, there's three realities. So brilliant, between you and me, there's three realities. There's my intentions, my motives, reality number one. Reality number two is my behavior, my words, my tones, my gestures, nonverbals. Reality number three is the impact of my behavior on you. Now, each of us know only two of those three realities. Hmm. I know my motives. 
We both see the behavior, but I don't know the impact and you don't know my motives. Yeah. So we say, imagine a tennis net between reality number one and reality number two, between my intentions and my behavior. And in tennis, you can't play any other person's backcourt. But when we comment, we often are, quote, over the net. So one of the things that we stay and say in the course is stay on your side of the net. Well, what's an example of that? So if um, if you say, um, uh, David, uh, you just want to show how smart you are, mm-hmm. uh, you're over the net mm-hmm. because you're making up a story, and it is a story, as to my motives. Now, if you stick with your reality, you might say, David, your answers tend to be too long, and I start to lose interest. Well, that's your reality. I can't say, no, you don't, or I'm over your net. Mm. I may say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that. And then we could get into joint problem solving. What, what could I do? And I, my guess is what you picked up in the meeting is people were starting to make up stories, making attributes about the other person's motives and intentions. Yeah. You just want to have your own way. You just want to control the discussion. Yep. And, and that creates defensiveness. And it's also a low impact statement because the other person has only to say, no, I don't. And you're nowhere. Right. But if you were to say, hope it's not true. So, David, when you keep on talking, I lose interest. It's indisputable. I I can't say no. I can be bothered. I can be bothered mostly myself. But uh, it's indisputable. And therefore, it's very impactful. Yeah. I, <laughs> I had a friend once who said... He said, you know, anytime I get in a fight with my girlfriend, she'll always just say, well, that's just how I feel. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and I saw this tweet that said, how you know you're going to lose an argument with your wife. Number one, you're in an argument with your wife. <laughs> you know? but, but this idea, and this is some, there's so much in this that I want to explore with you because you talk about, so I love this idea that we can only know our side of the net. We can theoretically, right. In in, in an ordinary state of consciousness, we can both see the words and the actions of both parties. Right. And we can know this is what, this is one of the things that is kind of amazing to me is that I, I happen to believe that we don't even ourselves know our motives. (laughs) We might say, we might claim we have a motive, but, and I know that gets into some fuzzy space. That's maybe not necessarily useful, or it's a place for a therapist's office, but but at least knowing like, Hey, I can know how I feel. I can know my motives, but I can't for sure know how that person feels or I can't know their motives. So there's this back and forth, a give and take in any interaction with human beings. But then this thing about how there's this amazing awareness, I think required to be effective in staying on our side of the net, you know, in, in one regard, but part of what complicates that is, and I love the way you break this down that many people will maybe unskillfully use, I feel, I, well, I feel that, or I feel like, but will you talk about there's There's at least two things here. I'd love to, to hear your, your view on one is about the power and importance of emotions in real, like in human interaction or in, in human life. And then two is a way that we kind of 
unfairly or unwisely, unskillfully kind of explain how we feel sometimes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> there are at least three major issues in what you covered. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I want to take them apart, but they're all okay. really very important. You raised the first point. I want to go back to where you started where you said, do we know our motives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we kid ourselves. But the nice thing about uh, this model, this way of interacting, is it's a process in which I can learn more about my motives. So let me go back to my example, mm-hmm. using myself again. Uh, so, so, so let's say you were to say that. Gee, David, you know, you go on too long. Uh, and um, what you might also say is to say, uh, gets in the way of our relationship. Uh, you know, what is that for you, David? Well, that may get me to reflect. And it might be that I wasn't aware of my motives, but you're stopping me short may get me to reflect. And I might say, well, you know, I guess when I think about it, I often uh, don't think that I'm listened to. Mm-hmm. So I guess I say things uh, two or three times. Well, now I'm aware of a motive that I wasn't before because of our interaction. Yeah. So the this more open back and forth uh, where you're staying on your side of the net can help me not only understand the impact of my behavior, but may get me to be mindful. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that, so that's <laughs> that was an important point that I didn't want to miss. So uh, want to go on to talk about emotions or do you want to follow up on that point? So I do, I do want to follow up on that for a moment uh, because there's also this thing, right? About, okay, well, that's the impact to that human being. That's how yes. they feel. That's their experience. But then there's a point that's like, well, screw them. Or that's just a sample of one. 99 other people don't feel that way. So like at what point, and I don't know that there's an answer to this, right? But at what point are we true to ourselves, so to speak, and we continue in a course of behavior or action, or whatever, even knowing that it's having an, like a person is having an experience or it's having the effect of something on another person? Well, we see feedback as information, not as a requirement to change. Hmm. It, so, so if you give me feedback, uh, it shouldn't be, co- I shouldn't experience it as coercion. coercive. Hmm. Yes, you may wish that I would change, but that choice is mine. I like that. That and, way. And uh, but if I don't have that information, I don't have a choice. That's yeah. the whole point. It's so feedback choice. as information, not a requirement for change. That's right. That's great. You may wish it, uh, and you may be unhappy if I don't. But it's a choice of my part. Yep. And my job isn't to make everybody happy. My job is to also meet my needs. Hmm. Um, also, there isn't a perfect way for me to act with everybody. Right. So this is a process in which I could learn to modify my behavior, still being myself, because as complex human beings, we can be ourselves and act in somewhat different ways. 
So I act uh, differently to Eva than I do to Carol. Both of them I'm close to, but I act differently, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the woman behind the uh, the clerk, behind the supermarket. Yeah. So we, we modify our behavior all the time. Yeah. So which means that in each relationship, if I want a relationship, that I need to take account what works for you and works for me. Now, if I don't want a relationship, I might say, well, to hell with it. Yeah. But this is based on the notion, and I don't want a relationship with everybody. I mean, that's too exhausting. Right. Uh, and I want different levels of relationship with different people. I certainly don't want exceptional with everybody. I'd get a heart attack from the strain. Right. So uh, I need some slight friends. I need some that are closer. I may need a tennis partner, uh, but a tennis partner doesn't have to be an either relationship. Yeah. So, but I need to figure out what relationship I want with this person and they want with me. And this is a process of working out what works for both of us. Mm. All right. And, uh, and, and so let me give it a more specific example. One of my characteristics is I interrupt people. So I've I've really had to watch myself not to interrupt you, trying to do that. Now with Carol, my co-author, I interrupt her all the time. She interrupts me all the time. Works fine. We see interrupting as a sign of engagement. Mm-hmm. I have a colleague some time ago, Daniel, where I saw him frown. And I said, Daniel, what's going on? He said, you interrupted me. I said, so? He said, that's inconsiderate. Mm. And I went, wow. Now, is interrupting good or bad? An irrelevant question. Yeah. It's good with Carol. Doesn't work with Daniel. And so what I said using that three-part model, I said, wow. I said, first of all, I'm sorry. Not my intention. But clearly, I'm doing something, uh, which I guess is interrupting, that's having that impact on you. He said, yeah. He said, I think interrupting is inconsiderate. I said, I'm glad to hear that. I said, I'm going to work very hard not to interrupt you, but it's going to take effort on my part. But I'm going to ask that you give me a little leeway, because I know I'm going to fail sometime. He said, fine. And we worked it out. So therefore, I was able to modify my behavior, he to modify someone his, so we could have a relationship. And, and, and that's what it takes to build relationships, that I'm aware and that I have a choice. Yeah. Now, there's maybe there's other people who say, you know, I don't like when you interrupt. And I say, I'm sorry, I'll pay that cost. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that that's so powerful. The awareness, the choice, the responsiveness, or not, but that's part of the choice, right? And then and then going back to the the thing about emotion, also, and I, I know there might have been more to it than uh, what I'm about to ask here, but I definitely want to follow up on this thing about when people assert that they're having an experience or feeling an emotion that's maybe not really an emotion. <laughs> Will you talk yeah. about that? Yeah. Um... In, in the English language, we use I feel two different ways. And they're both legitimate, but they're two different ways. One is as an emotion. I, um, 
So right now, I'm feeling quite excited about our conversation. I'm feeling pleased with it. Mm. Uh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, me too. Good. Uh, those are emotions. But we also use the word I feel to stand for a cognition. Uh, I feel that this is a uh, useful interview, is a cognition. Mm-hmm. I feel good that I think this is a useful inter- uh, uh, interview, is a feeling with a cognition. So whenever you hear people say, I feel that, I feel like, I feel as, you're going to get a cognition. I feel that the meeting has gone on too more, too long. Now, there's feelings behind it, but they're unstated. Uh, I feel that you just want to dominate. Um, Is not an emotion. In English language, you can't say, I feel that angry. Just not good English. So it's interesting to listen to people because most of the time when we say, I feel, you won't get an emotion. Yeah. And so what I say to people is I say, okay, here what you're thinking, but what are you feeling? Mm. And uh, now then the question is, why do I want to know? And why we stress feelings is two major reasons. One is thoughts tell what is. Feelings tell what's important to me. Feelings, so when I tell you what I'm excited about, bothered about, dismayed about, worried about, pleased about, you're knowing David Moore. Yeah. And uh, if we don't know how people feel, we don't really know them. And and one of the things we say in um, building a relationship is, are you really sharing your emotions? Now, the other reason why emotions are important is they give meaning to facts. So saying, David, you interrupt a lot, it's a fact. Carol's saying, David, you interrupt a lot, and I really like it. Changes the meaning from Daniel saying, David, you interrupt a lot, and I don't like it. So emotions give meaning to to what's going on. And if we just went around the world and just gave observations, we often then want to say, well, where do you stand with that? What does that mean to you? Mm. And what we're asking is, how do you feel about it? Mm. Yeah, that's, I think that's actually really profound to, to say that emotions give meaning, right? And I, I watched, um, I think it was a talk, maybe you and Carol gave it Google, where she talked about treble and bass. Mm-hmm, right. I thought that was cool. What is, is that, um, I've never heard, um, this kind of analogy before, but I think she had said that like, if the, if the facts are the treble (laughs) and the Mm -hmm. emotions are the bass, but what, what does that really mean? Well, if you're listening to a symphony and you have a stereo receiver and you turn one off, that symphony is much less. Yeah. You're not getting the richness of it. Yeah that I want to hear. I want to hear facts. I just don't want to hear feelings. I mean, that's, that's only half the, half the music. Right. Uh, so in a symphony, I want to hear bass and I want to hear treble. And then the symphony comes alive. 
And I think that if I can hear what's going on for you, what's going on in your life, and how you're feeling about it, there's, there's that richness that uh, wouldn't be there if I only heard one. Yeah, that, that's, I really appreciate that, that insight. And um, you end the book, I, I thought this was interesting, and I'd love if you'd talk about this, because I, I know in a way it, it probably brings the book full circle, where you talk about exceptional relationships, you talk about self-disclosure, you know, allowing others to be known and so forth. But you've chosen to end the book with the topic of fear. Mm-hmm. Why? I think fear controls so much of us. And um, there are things, legitimate things to be afraid of. I don't want to uh, discount that. But I think we put too much weight on what we think is the impending disaster. Gee, I'm afraid Sam won't like me. Mm-hmm. Well, is the world going to come to an end? I'm afraid I'll make a mistake. Is the world going to come to an end? Is my world going to come to an end? Um, and I'm afraid that if I make this comment to you, you'll be upset. Well, you might be, but is that going to kill the relationship? Isn't there a chance we could recover? And um, I, I think that we're more aware of acts of commission, but I think what we lose more are acts of omission, things we don't do. Yeah. And uh, I would rather, uh, well, let me put it this way. I have a colleague who said, the only mistake you can make is to refuse to learn from your mistakes. I think that mistakes rarely are end of, end of the situation. Mm. Uh, A, they could often be repaired. And if they can't, maybe I can learn from it. Yeah. And I think I learned from, I've certainly made enough mistakes. And I think I've earned them. Do I regret them? Yeah, at some level I regret it. But also I say, that's life. Yep. And I don't want to walk around being afraid of doing things. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Well, uh, just a few more questions before we, we transition. A few more questions about the book and, and some of its contents. Uh, one thing I thought I, was a really useful idea is this idea of a pinch. (laughs) I wish that our society more broadly had that, like uh, that term (laughs) as something, and then they could call it out when it happens and resolve it. But um, I'd never heard this before until I read your work, but will you tell me what is a pinch and maybe how can we actually use it effectively to improve our experience and the quality of our relationships? Well, a pinch is a pinch. That is, I'm, I'm, I'm pinched. I, I'm not deeply hurt. It's not a capital crime, uh, but I feel pinched. So um, uh, let's say that um, I do something. Uh, I, I go down and I uh, make coffee and I make a little bit of a mess. 
uh, Eva's going to feel pinched. Here she's just cleaned up the kitchen, and I cavalierly come down. Uh, it's it's not a earth-shaking, relationship-ruining event. It's a pinch. And, and I think that we uh, are pinched somewhat frequently because, as you said before, we're all different. We all have our own style, and we do things that we don't realize may have pinched that one individual. Yeah. And it may not have pinched somebody else. So it's a certain sense idiosyncratic. Now, this is not to say that we ought to respond to all pinches. I mean, life is short. And, and right. we let things roll off our back. The trouble is, it may be more important than we think. Or it may happen again. And then it becomes a bigger pinch. And the danger is it becomes a crunch. Mm. And then it can become a major conflict. So let me go back. I hadn't thought about but This is fortuitous. Some time ago, I actually was making coffee. And uh, I left the spoon on the, on the uh, counter. And Eva said with some heat, uh, why the hell don't you clean up after yourself? I said, what's that about? Because my first instinct was say, what's the big deal about one spoon? Well, it wasn't one spoon. It was a series of other little messes that she had let go by that had now built up. And often when things become a crunch, it's, it seems to be more than, I mean, you're responding more than the other person thinks appropriate, yeah. but because you've accumulated all this. So the question is, what pinches do I respond to and which I don't? And I may not know ahead of time, um, but our tendency is to shove them aside. We mm -hmm. don't want to be seen as super sensitive. Uh, we don't want to uh, be a pain to the other person, and mm -hmm. we let it go. And Carol actually developed this. She said one of the ways to test how important it is is when you're saying to yourself, oh, it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. You change the pronoun. You say, I'm not worth it. You're not worth it. The relationship isn't worth it. Mm. And then you may decide, eh, it is worth it. Mm. Or you may decide, yeah, it's not worth it. Yeah. But we need to watch our tendency to say, oh, it's just a pinch. And uh, it may be more than that. Yeah, for sure. Again, this is one of those things that when I hear it, I think there's potentially some really deep value right? In this, uh, awareness of, and I once heard uh, a spiritual teacher say, it's never about what it's about, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. That, that there's the part of the profundity of this. I think if there is, if there is one is that when we're able to listen beyond the content of the message and hear that there's an emotion behind it and then attend to the emotion. Now we don't always have to, like you said, I love feedback is information. It's not a requirement. But when we're aware that there are the two levels, 
of communication. There's the content. Why do you leave the spoon on the counter? And then there's the emotion behind that. That's probably coming from a bigger reality of maybe not feeling appreciated or, you know, something else. And then we can explore that. And then it opens up avenues that can really enhance the relationship if we're willing to take that on or see it that way. Right. Right. And what happened with that interaction with me and Eva and the spoon was so, uh, you know, I said, what's going on? And we explored it. She said, um, you know, I don't feel appreciated Mm. for all the cleaning I do. So it did stand for something more. It wasn't a spoon. And it wasn't just this one incident. But was it that I was treating, taking her for granted? Mm -hmm. And then once we saw that, we could then have a discussion of to what extent do we do verbally appreciate the other? Yeah. And then we uh, deepened the relationship. Now, now sometimes a spoon is just a spoon. Right. You you probably know the famous story of Sigmund Freud and the cigar. Cigar, yeah. <laughs> where he was giving a talk before the English Psychoanalytic Association. He pulled out a cigar, he licked it, and he bit <laughs> off one end, and he uh, lit the cigar, and he said, Sometimes a cigar is just a good cigar, <laughs> and sometimes a spoon is just a spoon. Yep. But it may not be. And yeah. that's what we need to be aware of. Yeah. And this, and the larger kind of model here of the pinch, the crunch, the major conflict, I think that's actually, there's some real value there too in being able to have that awareness, be able to evaluate the cost benefit. You know, is it worth it? Am I worth it? Is relationship worth it? And then to choose, you know, yeah, it is. And, and so forth. And, and I love what you've broken down about, you know, the feedback sandwich that's so mm-hmm. often taught and how I think your take is it's really kind of a crappy thing to do. <clears throat> and I'd love to hear your take on that. But my dad wanted to share this. Um, I think my dad, one of his ways of dealing with this was he would open some conversations with, I've got a bone to pick with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that was the signal like, okay, this is a pinch. Maybe it's a crunch, but if those were the words, I knew it wasn't a major conflict. It was like, okay, all right, bring it on. (laughs) Let me hear it. You know, but I appreciated that. And it wasn't this model of, well, let me tell you what you're doing really well. And then I'm going to give you something that's really hard for you to hear. And then I'll pat you on the back a little bit, the feedback sandwich. But when you talk about like what, you know, and I know many people listening to this, I think they do lead others. They're in a workplace, they're maybe managers or whatever, and they're looking for ways to be effective. They want to be liked, you know, but this feedback sandwich is uh, maybe not the best way to go about addressing a, a concern you have or desire you have related to someone's behavior. What, why do you say that? And what do you recommend instead? Well, for one thing, there's research to show it's ineffective. Nobody hears that first statement. As soon as you hear that, you're waiting for the but. Yeah. So it's it's not effective. Well, why do something that's not effective? So what we also say is, is feedback is going to be more effective if you really want to help somebody. And my guess is your father wanted to help the relationship. Yeah. Um. Uh, his intentions was not to make you feel like a miserable worm, but it was to improve something that was getting in the way. Yep. So his intentions were there. And what was good is that he cued you, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think that if we, that's a great way to start. So I think at work, I would go to somebody and say, uh, there's something that's going on that I'm bothered about, or there's something going on that's hurting our relationship, or there's something going on that I think is hurting you. Mm -hmm. I think those would all be way that you're cueing the other person. This is important. And I want to talk about it. It also assumes that the other person is, um, is can handle it. And I think most people can handle things like that. Yeah. If somebody gets bothered about it, I would want to say, look, if I can't raise that, I can't be helpful to you. And yeah. I want to be helpful to you. There's another thing that's wrong with a feedback sandwich, and that is it delegitimizes positive feedback. Mm. Because we give use of feedback sandwich to soften the other person up. Well, I think that's insulting to the other person, one thing. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, why do you need to be softened up? Because I think you're a healthy human being. Right. And I'm not out to, uh, to hurt you. I may be bothered about your behavior. Doesn't mean I want to hurt you. And I think that we need to go around in organizations and give positive feedback that's also behaviorally specific. Yeah. So when we say to somebody, nice job, well, I'll make them feel warm and fuzzy, but it's useless. Right. What did they do that was a nice job? It ought to be behaviorally specific. Gee, the report you gave at the meeting was really nice because it was succinct and you cut to the point. Yeah. Behaviorally specific. It was really good because you answered the questions in a straightforward way. And if we went around in organizations uh, just uh, spontaneously giving positive feedback that's behaviorally specific, people would learn about themselves because mm -hmm. we often don't know the full positive impact of what we do. Yeah. And it would help relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Well, thanks for that. That was a, that was an unexpected, um, you know, gem for me, because honestly I've had guests that will praise the feedback sandwich and give like, here's the new way to <laughs> do it. But so, to me, it, doesn't work. it feels a bit manipulative. You know? oh, it is manipulative. Yeah. It's very manipulative. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot and I know there's so much more that we could, uh, that we could talk about, but before we transition to the next part of the interview, uh, let me ask you, um, and I didn't tell you this before we started recording, but the design of this is that um, there's an enlightening lightning round, which is a series of questions, a variety of topics, not related to, to this necessarily. Then the last part is about writing and creativity. So I'd love to mm. get in a little bit to that uh, before we wrap, but knowing that that's what's left, maybe, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes of that. What, if anything related to this book or your work, have we not talked about that you want to talk about or you think would be of benefit to the listener or the viewer? Well, the thing which I'd want to stress, and we've talked about it, but I want to raise it again. And that is the fact that um, well, there's two things. So let me start again. There's two things which I'd want to say. One is what we're talking about is behavior. Mm -hmm. And often people say, well, that's my personality. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not going to get into what is personality, which is really a complex uh, topic. 
but uh, we're not trying to modify personality. It's a therapist job, if it's a, even possible. We're talking about behavior. Yeah. And behavior we have control over. So I can be shy, um, and that can be a pretty innate part of me. But I could learn to, um, I could go to Toastmasters and learn how to get tell jokes, and I could learn to be sociable. Yeah. Uh, so I could modify my behavior. So when somebody says, that's my personality, I think the answer is to say, no, what we're talking about is your behavior. Mm. And you have control over your behavior. Be used, I'm, that's my personality as an excuse. And I don't want people to um, get away with that. Related to that, and we've talked about it before, but I really want to stress it, is that everything is a choice. And when students say, I can't, mm. We say, no, you're choosing not to. Mm. So we say, technically, uh, I can't refers to a physical impossibility. So my office here is actually two stories above the street. I can't jump out the window and escape unharmed. But most of the time we say, I can't out of politeness. So if a person were to say to me, Gee, I'd like you and Eva to come over for dinner on Saturday. Mm -hmm. I'm likely to say, well, gee, that's really very nice. We'd like to. I can't because we have symphony tickets. Yeah. Well, that's uh, not really accurate. Right. Because if they were to say, if you don't come, I'll slash my wrists, I'd sell my symphony tickets. But it's impolite for me to say, gee, that's really very nice, but I choose not to. Right. Because I have symphony tickets. So when we when people, students say, I can't, we say, no, you're making a choice. Uh, that may be a choice you want to make. But own the fact that it's a choice. Yeah. So we want people, in a sense, to take responsibility for their behavior. And uh, if we took responsibility for our behavior, we, um, I think, would feel much more uh, empowered. So if you're at work and your uh, colleague is talking about difficulties with a boss and you say, have you talked with the boss? Oh, I can't. No, I'd say, oh, you're choosing not to. You may, that may be a wise choice, but it's a choice. And own the choice, and it might be even more accurate to say, I choose not to yet. Yeah. Because it holds a possibility of the future being different. Mm. Yeah. This, oh man, this is one, this topic, it excites me, it challenges me, you know, so much. And, and it's one that I work with clients as I coach one on one or in groups as well. And, and then as I live, and, and for me, the kind of, uh, I don't know if it's a corollary, but another version of this is need, right? Like I need you to get this report done by Friday. Well, mm -hmm. BS, you want me to <laughs> or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But owning or just the demand, get this report done by Friday. And there's all the ways you could formulate it. 
And some of them are literally true and others are less true. It's not a, it doesn't refer to a physical impossibility. I love the way you say that with, I can't, but it is interesting to me how it, my experience or my sense is that we hide behind language, right? The truth of our desire or our belief or whatever by saying, no, I can't, or I need, or other formulations. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. The need sounds sort of like, I won't survive. I may want it. Right. It may be important to me, but that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. And you have a choice about how you respond. That's right. We all, yeah, that's the thing. And really having that awareness. I remember uh, I led a, a letter program once and uh, it was, I was training coaches and helping the coaches learn the value of helping their clients formulate outcomes. Mm -hmm. The whole basis of a coaching relationship is what do you want? What are you trying to achieve? Right. And using the participants own real life experience to demonstrate this. And I remember this one woman, we talked about her desire to earn a certain amount of money or her need to earn a certain amount of money. And if she didn't, okay, what would happen? And then what, and then what, and so forth. And it got to, well, then I would, I would have, I would be homeless. I would have to live in my car and I can't do that. <laughs> and it was, well, there's many people doing it now, like, and she, like watching her. And I get, she was in a group of people and maybe on the spot a little bit and so forth. But that one, it, it stayed with me in particular about her seeming inability or her unwillingness, at least to get something that wasn't literally true. Right. But in her language, she was asserting it was true. And, and what I could see was that this was a, related to a whole belief system right? That if she could see past the untruth of, I can't live in my car, what else would be available to her? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I geek out. I totally, totally geek out on this because if I, if spiritual work and I do tend, I tend to believe that coaching can be sometimes spiritual work, that, that this is what liberation looks like, at least in part, Yeah, you know? So anyway, thank Yeah. I I'm nerding out on it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's important. No. Okay. Well, cool. So I think those were the things that you said. Is there anything more on? No, I think uh, we could keep on talking, but uh, we have other, other areas to go. That's right. Other vistas to pursue. Okay. So again, moving to the enlightening lightning round, a series of questions on a variety of topics. uh, And I'll just check in with you too. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Good. Okay. Been about, about an hour. Sure. All right. So question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life (laughs) is like a. Is like a mountain to climb. Okay. Question number two, what's something about which you have changed your mind in recent years? I think I have become more. It's going to say more discouraged. I think I've become less optimistic about people's willingness to uh, to change, which has felt discouraging to me. And what is particularly discouraging is when I see people in the helping professions not willing to look at themselves. Okay. I know there's, we could, uh, we could explore that more, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to keep us moving. Question number three. I know this one might be a stretch, 
But if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a, sl- with a saying on it, a slogan or a phrase or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? There's a um, saying by a early rabbi. This is what I have. God does not expect us to be perfect. He only expects us to be fully human. Hmm. I like that. I haven't heard that before. That's cool. Okay, question number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? I think um, The Getting to Yes from Hmm. the Harvard Group. Why that book? Because I think they've done an excellent job of identifying um, how conflict gets um, into a logjam. Mm-hmm. and ways to uh, undo the logjam. Uh, that how people with um, what seem like basic differences could still find an area of common coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, we could still have those differences, but, but can we, and, and I think, I think that could apply to people who are pro and con on climate change. I think on guns. I think if we really got at what people's needs are and went away from positions, we could make a lot of progress. Yeah. Agreed. And staying on our side of the net (laughs) in the process. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, Question number five. So this one deals with travel. Uh, I suspect you've had your share of travel (laughs) in in your life. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do when you travel or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Oh, my wife. Mm. Makes a big difference because I not only see and do things, but I can share things, get deeper meaning from it Yeah, by our conversation. Cool. That's awesome. All right. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, <clears throat> I'm having trouble with my eyesight. I'm starting to lose my eyesight. Uh, I've had to, uh, do a series of giving up things. Uh, I can't drive. I can't read a newspaper. Fortunately, there's all sorts of technology. But what I've had to give up is a sense of um, that the world's coming to an end because I can't do some things. Mm. And more saying, yes, I miss those a lot. Um, but I can adapt mm. and there can be a, um, a new way of being. So it changes forms of entertainment. Um, mm. uh, so movies don't work for me, but symphonies do. Mm. And so I search out new things. Some form of travel will work. Some form of travel won't work. But rather than bemoaning it, saying, okay, that's where I am now. Mm. What can I do? 
Well, you know, hearing you say that, I, I recently heard this thing about um, knowledge is learning something every day, but wisdom is letting go of something every day. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes me think of that. I like that. So, okay. Uh, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American, every citizen of the United States, what's one thing you wish they knew? I wish they knew how to be curious, particularly about differences and not rush to judgment, but more ask the question, I don't have to agree with you, but I really would like to understand you. Mm. Don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. Mm. Don't take yourself or the situations too seriously. And I think if we did that, we would um, not be as upended. We would lean into situations more. So it's it, it's it's all doable. Yeah, for sure. All right. And in question number nine, uh, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Once you have a, a, a don't be controlled by it. Um, uh, don't do things for money. Do things because you want to do things and the money will follow. If you do what you're interested in, the money will follow. I believe that. I do believe that. Well, congratulations. You survived the enlightening lightning round. <laughs> you did great. And uh, on, the, on the theme of money, uh, one thing I've done as uh, an attempt to express my gratitude to you for sharing so generously of your time and your insight and your experience, um, I have made a micro loan through Kiva.org, which I understand was started by some Stanford students. Mm. Um, to a woman in Ecuador. She lives in Manta, Ecuador. Her name is Martha Cecilia. And she makes a living as a mobile vendor of sheets and bedspreads. She has had this business for years and she, sell, she sells sheets and bedspreads to her neighbors and friends and relatives. And so in this way, I've made a hundred dollar micro loan. It's part of a larger loan. Uh, I believe that uh, she will improve the quality of life for herself and her family and people in her community in a way that we'll never see. So hopefully this conversation will go out and do good in the world in many ways. Good. Well, thank you for doing that. Yeah. Thank My you. Pleasure. Okay. Well, the, the last part uh, of the interview here, I just have a few questions for you about writing and creativity. Uh, many people listening to this, many people who listen, I think have uh, an aspiration or they're involved in finishing their own books and their own writing projects so they can take some inspiration and, and maybe some ideas from you. Uh, I understand you've published now eight, eight books. Mm -hmm. right? So that again, is not a dabbler. <laughs> it's a doer, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Um, let me start by just asking, when did you first know you were a writer and how did you know? Well, I, uh, my high school English teacher would say I'm, I wasn't. <laughs> so it was not an easy journey for me. I actually got some uh, help 
editorial help in my early writing, mostly articles. Um, I didn't start off saying I want to be a writer. I started off saying there's things I want to write. And therefore, I had to be a writer. So um, there's things I want to say. There's things I want to convey to, to other people. So, so that was a driving force. Um, I don't think I'm uh, the best writer. In fact, Carol and I have very different writing styles in a way that was very helpful. That she, she says... Some of my writing is clunky, and she helped to smooth it out. And I said, some of your writing is um, repetitious and not organized, and I helped that. So I think all – I'm now doing a ninth book. It's the only book I uh, will probably do by myself. Hmm. What I discovered is that I need to write with somebody else. Yeah that I'm I'm not I can get 80% by myself but I need somebody else. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty common whether or not people share credit on the cover, you know, having a co-writer or a you know a with that we tend to think of writing as a solitary act and in many ways it is, but almost always, right? Like there is a team behind it, editors, whether that's copywriters or structural editors or this kind of thing. But saying that you need someone else, what um, to this point, what does your process look like? Like, how have you, if you will, walk me through the process of finishing a book from how do you settle on the idea? How do you research? How do you organize? How do you draft? How do you edit? Like, just anything. How do you get a book done? <clears throat> well, uh, the simple as it is, you start with an idea and a goal. But, but let me talk about how we did connect. I think that might be more useful. Okay. So the uh, we got a I, I got a call from a uh, publisher in um, Random House UK, and uh, he said, uh, "I hear you teach a course called Touchy Feely. How would you like to do a book on it?" And I said. Uh, well, Daniel, uh, it'll sell all of 600 copies. How about a book on what the course produces, which is strong, robust relationships? He said, okay. Hmm. So I was approached by a publisher, which is very fortunate, because most of the time you have to go to publishers. And so what I would say is you need to start with the idea and do the book you want and then find the publisher. Mm -hmm. And you may have to self-publish. So, in a sense, I've been lucky in that people have, by and large, come to come to me, come to us. So I went to Carol and I said, "Carol, you want to do this with me?" And she said, "Yes." And it took us four years, in which we probably reorganized the book. We knew what we wanted to talk about. We wanted to talk about the results of this course, so that was clear. We probably reorganized the book four or five times. Wow. We probably rewrote every chapter at least 10 times. Wow. So the process was, I tend to think relatively logically. So we'd sort of agree on what, what was the area of chapter three. And I would 
do an outline. And I would send the outline to Carol, and Carol would add to the outline. Then I would do the first draft. Then she'd rewrite the first draft. And then I would rewrite the second draft. And then we'd go on to the another chapter, and then we'd realize that part of what was an early chapter ought to be in a later chapter, or that this chapter, I mean, we, we literally dropped chapters. Huh. Um, somebody once said, the, uh, the book is only as good as what you have cut out of it. Hmm. And uh, our editor helped us cut even more out of it. Uh, and it's it's hard when you love that concept or you love that idea that you have to um, cut it out. Yeah, I think so. As I read books, my general sense is it should have been rewritten one more time. Mm-hmm. People stop too early. Yeah, and they're too much in a hurry. So. Um, uh, the other books I've done with another co-author, Alan, uh, it drove him crazy because I'd want to rewrite it. And the agreement was that as long as I had new ideas, he'd go along with it. Hmm. Grumbling a bit, but he'd go along with it. But if it was just rewriting for the sake of rewriting, no, that wasn't legitimate. And um, and I think the book, the books that have done best are those that we stuck with it. So I, I think that um, it's a hard process. And uh, too many people just, I think, just turn it out and don't go back in. Yeah. Well, and it's easier than ever before when, you know, the laptop in front of us is professional quality hardware and software <laughs> to, to get our, and then anyone can send that out into the world, you know, without an editor or with, with an editor and not a lot of care or effort or whatever. So, and at the same time, it's amazing to me that books are still, I think very, very special things and publishing a book is up there for many people, um, including me uh, with any of life's major accomplishments, you know, building a company or running a marathon or getting a college degree or whatever. So it's, it's a, it's no small feat for sure. I think the other thing is, Mm -hmm. um, most books I read could be half the size. Yeah. Um, one of the complaints we've had about connect is that people say, uh, this, this isn't hard reading, but there's a lot of material in there. Yeah. And I think we could have sold more copies if we would have simplified. But our commitment was not to simplify. We wanted to make it clear. We wanted to make it uh, easy to understand. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to simplify. Yeah. Well, and that, and that point, too, I like that saying about a book is only as good as what was taken out of it or, you know, left out of it. One question that I'd love to get your take on is about when an editor or a co-writer, a collaborator suggests, Hey, let's omit this, you know, or this portion of a chapter, this whole chapter, whatever. How do you, how do you balance that with your own inner voice or your own sense? How do you know when to trust someone else's judgment versus like go with your own instinct or your own, your own uh, 
opinion? Well, first of all, I need to ask, is my resistance because I'm in love with it? I'm in love with my words. Mm. That's the first thing I need to ask myself. Um, and there may be that part where you go, mm, that was such a nice way to phrase it. <laughs> right. uh, gee, I feel so proud of that idea. Uh, and I think the second thing is, and this has happened, is when Carol or Alan or other people said, we don't cut that out, is I want to say why. Mm-hmm. You know, you make a case for it. And let me try to understand and not immediately resist. But uh, why isn't this important? Mm-hmm. Why isn't this crucial? And um, and when it um, and by the way, um, I don't. Um, I think you also have to ask the question: Am I writing a book so it'll be popular? Uh, what, what book do you want to write? We want to write a book that will last. We think this book is going to last many, many years. Yeah. Uh, in the field, it's called, does it have legs? I think this has legs. That's very different than, is this going to be a flash in the pan that will sell very, very well for two years and then be on the rendering table from then on? Yeah. So, so what, what book do you want to write? Yeah. And uh, if you want to write that sort of book, then somebody wants to cut things out, uh, ask yourself the question, does that meet the goal that I want? And remember, it's it's your book. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And, and I like what you said just a few minutes ago about you start, you know, you start your books with an idea and a goal or goals. And I would imagine if you're clear about your goals and you're truly committed to them, that that would inform the decisions on, hey, well, this belongs here or this is essential or yeah, I could, I could jettison that. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of, um, so when you talk about, I love that, what you said with, with your agreement with Alan, that if you have a new idea or, uh, that you'll, you'll include that, or you'll keep going on the development of the book or whatever, but will you talk a little bit about how do you, so first of all, how do you find someone that you're willing to engage in a multi, in some cases, a multi-year project with? You know, something that's difficult, something that's arduous, something that can be ambiguous. So a, like, how do you find, how do you know when this is a person that you want to attach to or commit to in that way? And then how do you formulate the kind of agreements and and the working relationship that, that actually works for you both, assuming it does? (laughs) Yeah. Well, Alan and I had done, and with Carol, Carol and I um, were colleagues for 17 years Hmm. before we started the book. Uh, with Al and I had done other projects with, we had taught together, we had done workshops together. Um, and when I got the call on this book and thought of who I want to write it with, there was another colleague who had wanted to do something with me. And he was, uh, really upset that I didn't ask him. Mm. And I told him why, uh, that I felt I thought that his style was not one that I could work well with. Hmm. Um, so I was very specific. Um, so, so I, I think that's part of it. The other thing is, is before in the process of doing it, it's useful to talk about the, the vision each person has. What do you want this to be? 
what do you want this to look like? Um, and also to talk about um, the different styles you have and not and are they complementary? So, for example, Alan will own, he said, once I get the idea down, I start to lose interest in it. Hmm. And I say, once the idea is down, we just are just beginning to work. Yeah. Because I really want to tease out what the parts are. Mm-hmm. And um, each of us valued what the other brought. Uh, there was, I said, a complimentary uh, in style with Carol and myself. Um, so, so I think you, you have to talk, you have to get agreement about what it is you want, where you want to go, and what does each person bring? Yeah, that makes sense. When it comes to the work of actually creating the book, right? And this is one of the challenges that anyone who wants to do this inevitably runs into is actually facing the 168 hours in a week. (laughs) (laughs) This is where I'm going to not do other things I could do. And I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to push past any resistance or whatever self-doubt or whatever shows up. So my question for you with that is the context is when you're writing a book, what habits and routines do you follow? Which ones support you in actually uh, publishing? Well, different people have different styles. Mm -hmm. I find that if I'm working on something and it's hard going, um, that's a sign I should stop working. Uh, I think that uh, most of our thinking is pre-conscious. Um, the number of times I've tried to write something and I've walked away from it and I may, um, I I like to garden, so I may do some gardening or I may do another project and then I come back to it and all of a sudden it's clear. Um, (laughs) you know, many people report, oh, it's in the shower that it starts to become understandable. Yeah. I, I think when I'm working on something, uh, I'm always working on it. Mm-hmm. But I may not know I'm working on it. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is that if you have a partner, this impacts the partner. Uh, I remember when I was doing my doctoral thesis, <clears throat> I was struggling with something. I was freshly married. And I said to Eva, well, let's go out and get a hamburger. And we went out and got a hamburger. And I think during the whole dinner, I didn't say anything. And Eva said, this is the best dinner I had by myself. <laughs> I wasn't there. Mm. And um, there's a point in one of the books with Alan 
that Eva got <clears throat> jealous because she said, it's like you're having an affair with the book. Mm. You're, you're more committed to the book. And, um, you know, then you have to find time to spend time with other activities that are important to you. But it's, it's, when, it's when you're into a book, it's, at least I find it all engrossing. Yeah. I may not be writing much, but I'm working it. Mm. And uh, I remember times, <clears throat> uh, literally, we would go to the symphony. And during intermission, I'd say to Eva, do you have a pencil? Do you have a pen? And I'd be taking notes because something would come to me. Um, and uh, it, it is uh, it's all engrossing if you're really into it. Yeah. So At least it is for me. Yeah. How do you deal with that then? How do you make time and assuming you do for these other things, for family, for health, for your own, you know, personal well-being, so forth. How do you, how do you do that when you find, cause it sounds to me like you're writing, I don't know, I, you didn't use this word, but it sounds to me like a vocation. Like this is your, maybe you're even your Dharma, like this is right on for you and you allow yourself to be kind of sucked in maybe, <laughs> but how do you put these other guardrails, so to speak in place and keep yourself grounded or healthy or whatever you would say? Well, that's what I would so what did you see before? She would mm. say, you know, um, there isn't enough time for us. Or are you really um, taking care of yourself? Mm. Um, uh, it's a uh, it's an all-engrossing mistress. Um, and and that's for me part of the fun of it because because I, I love to figure out things. Yeah. That's where I get most of my enjoyment. And so my trying, so something being there and my trying to crack that nut, figure out what's the best way to come at this, what am I really trying to say, uh, is all engrossing and all satisfying. Mm. Uh, but I do need I do need breaks. Yeah. And they really ought to be breaks and not just time when I'm still working on it. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, that makes sense. What's, what's your next book about? If it's, um, if I may ask. Well, it's, it's, um, back to this course. <laughs> um, well, there's actually two books. Um, but the one, one I was thinking of, uh, running these groups requires a different set of teaching skills in any other course. And uh, I want to write up my theory of, of how you do that. Hmm. So there's not going to be a big market, but this is something I'm doing for myself. Cool. Um, the other book I'm doing with Eva. Wow. And, um, and we're writing up her, her family. Hmm. Um. Her parents escaped from Czechoslovakia in 39 after the Nazis marched in. Wow. And then went back after the war to see if any of the relatives had survived and got caught in a communist coup and had to escape again. Holy cow. And uh, it's really a story of 
Otto's being able to do all that. Hmm. And uh, I want to honor him and honor what he went through. So, um, and the courage it took. Yeah. So well, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And again, it may never be published. I want the family to know it. Yeah. But I think we write for different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't write for money. I write because there's things I want to say. Yeah, that, that's cool. Well, what um, what advice or encouragement? I know from reading Connect that you're not uh, you're not necessarily big on advice. Right. <laughs> so feel free to frame this however you would. But what would you say to people listening who are either harboring the dream of writing and publishing their own book, or they're in the middle of this? process, but they're not yet across the finish line. What do you say to someone to help uh, either keep them going, do it more efficiently or more enjoyably? What do you say to somebody in one of those situations? Well, I think everybody has a book within them. And I think you ought to ask yourself, um, do I want to do it? Uh, I don't think the world needs all the books that are published. So, um, uh, certainly published as they are. So that's the first question. Do you really want to do this? Is this important to you? And if so, uh, are you willing to um, be committed to it? Mm-hmm. In a certain sense, it's like a relationship. It's a temporary one. Yeah. If you're going to be in a relationship, a intimate relationship, um, you ought to be committed to it. I think to those who are into it is to say, um, this is hard work. Uh, Stick with it. Um, And um, don't rush yourself. Um, And um, if, if you have put this much time into it, I hope you're really committed to this being a really good book because I think most books are not as good as they should be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you in, in hearing what you, you shared about thinking, you know, everybody's got a book or, or maybe more. I, I asked a publisher once I said, do you think it's really true that everyone has at least one book in them? And she said, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I laugh about that. (laughs) No, that's great. Well, David, this has been a pleasure. I'm so grateful. I'm, I'm grateful that you've published connect. I'm grateful that you were willing to spend this time this afternoon talking with me. I'm grateful to know that you're doing this work. I can only imagine the impact it's made in the lives of many people and not just anybody, but leaders coming out of Stanford business school. I'm I'm glad to know this isn't all just maximize shareholder value and, you know, like all of this, it's, it gives me hope. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. No, no. And our students are good students and many of them also want to change the world. Yeah. Uh, and not just fill their pocketbooks. Yeah. Uh, good. Yeah. I, well, thank I you. I've enjoyed it too. Yeah. It's and I know. Fun. For anyone um, listening, of course, they'll have been able to find things online or in their podcast player on YouTube related to this. But uh, again, David Bradford, uh, co-author of Connect, Building Exceptional Relationships with Family, Friends, and Colleagues, 
uh, co-authored with Carol Robin. You can learn more about this book and David's work at connectandrelate.com. Uh, and with that, um, David, any final thought as we sign off here? No, this has been good and uh, best wishes to everybody. And may you have the life that you want to build. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.